morning, everybody. Welcome to the gathering. Welcome back to Lincoln Township Park. Uh, we missed out on seeing you all last week because it was pouring rain and about 39 degrees, but you know, the season has finally changed and we're here. Um, if you want to stay kind of up to date on that stuff, we are going to do our very best to make the gathering happen here on Sunday mornings at 1030. But the reality is sometimes it's going to rain and, and that's, that's just going to be a bummer. So if, if you're not on our email list, will you hit the hub and uh, fill out a connect card and update your information there so we can stay connected with you? We've got a hub over here as you come in from the library and one over here that right now has coffee and donuts available if you'd like. Um, 
And so if you could fill out a Connect card and we can stay connected and communicate that way. You can also go to storylinechurch.com to get that information. Um, two weeks from today is May 30th. And we, instead of meeting here, we are going to meet somewhere else. We're going to meet at Mosaic. And so I want to invite my friend Gabriel Engel up here, who's going to share a little bit about uh, our what we're going to be doing for our Impact Sunday, which is two weeks from today on May 30th. And so we're all going to uh, go over to Mosaic and, and help them out in what they're doing. So this is my friend Gabriel. We're going to have to move that way down. Hey guys, uh, I'm Gabrielle. I am the current COO of Mosaic. So Andrew Robinson, our CEO, and myself uh, get to tag team partner in this season of uh, Mosaic's new future that we're so, so excited about. For many of you, you know what Mosaic is. We are in the business of transforming lives in Southwest Michigan that looks like providing resources and education and equipping our community with the network they need to be successful in life and work. That looks like trauma counseling, financial literacy, job training, etc. I'd love to tell you more about that later. But the big news, if you haven't heard, is that we are moving. We are so excited to be purchasing the Value Land property. It's a thrift store located behind Henry's Hamburgers on 139. Uh, if you didn't know, that whole area is about to be redeveloped. So stay tuned for lots of construction going on there, including our new thrift store. Why are we moving the thrift store? This has been our flagship business, and we truly believe in its model for providing the sustainability that we need as an organization. As many of you all know, COVID has been wild, and we've been asking the question, how can we do the most? with the money that is given to us as an organization. And one of those things is doing business really, really well. So we're excited to be moving. And to be honest, if there was any time for you to invest in Mosaic, it's right now. We need as many hands on deck as possible to be painting and creating uh, this space anew. If you've been there recently, you know it needs a lot of love. Um, but I know this community has a lot of love to give, especially Storyliners. We could not do it without you. Uh, we have a couple board members that attend here that have invested a ton of time and energy into the business plan and development, as well as another Storyliner who really has designed the entire interior and exterior layout of what it's gonna look like. So I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of Mosaic for how you guys have loved us so well in this season, have gotten us to this new fresh start so that we can impact even more lives in Southwest Michigan. Thank you, thank you. Please come out on the 30th. We need as many hands as possible. All ages are welcome. It could look like painting, sorting donations, because uh, we're inheriting a thrift store, so we have about a decade of donations to sort in the back room. It could look like pulling weeds, truly transforming what has been uh, really a barren area in our city and bringing life and vibrancy back into uh, that retail district. So we're really excited and totally see the kingdom of God um, and what we're up to. So we'd love for you to be a part of it. If you have any questions, let me know. I'll be available um, after your service. Thank so, you for letting me. Yeah, Gabriel's going to be at this hub right here with Brianne. So if you want to connect with her on questions about that, you can see her there. So enjoy the gathering. Dog outside the tasty freeze. Diane. 
job, guys. Well, good morning, everyone. Isn't it good to be together again? Yes, beautiful day. You guys look a little, a lot of people waving at me, I see. I don't know what is, what's up with that, but it's good to be together. And how about our band? Can we get a hand for these guys? They're so good. Lindsay, so good to have you back. Thank you, brother. So uh, I want to give credit where credit is due. I think this is important, okay? Mike Cook actually picked that song this morning. Blew me away, okay? I was so excited because he usually suggests songs with, by bands with names like Northern Lights or Wistful or something like that or Hair Gel or something, right? And, so, and if the song's video doesn't have like an artsy shot of a polar bear on an iceberg, he doesn't like it, okay? But John Cougar, Mellencamp, huh? Now we're rocking, now we're talking. And I love that song, Jack and Diane. Absolutely love it because it takes me back to my days at Lakeshore Junior High School. And I know what you're thinking when I say that. Mike, who was voted best dancer in 1981 at Lakeshore Junior High School? And thanks for asking. It was me. That's right. It's a true story. I don't like to brag, but because you ask, I'll just go ahead and admit it. It was me in 1981. So yes, it is fun for me. When we play songs like that, I remember the good old days when I was young. And that's exactly what Jack and Diane is about, right? Like, it comes from the American Fool album, and it was, which was one of my very favorite eight tracks. Now, an eight track, never mind, okay, skip that part, okay. But it's a great song, and it's about two things kind of smashed next to each other. The hope of youth, and then this realization that adult life is hard. It's really hard. Long, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. And I understand where that feeling is coming from. I've certainly felt that way. Look, it's tempting. I think we all do this. It's natural to measure our lives by what we've accomplished, like what we've gotten done, how many battles we've won, how many mountains we've climbed, how much money we've made, pleasures we've had, all of the honors that we've received. And it's fun when all that's working, right? Like when the sun is shining and the wind is at your back and you're not getting attacked by gnats. It's, a, it's great to measure life that way. But eventually, ultimately, I think we all know that when we measure life that way, we're going to end up where Jack and Diane do. Still alive, long after it's lost its thrill. And this is why I'm so grateful Every week when we come together, we get to consider the good news of God's grace together. Because it is a constant reminder that life doesn't have to be measured like that. 
There is another way to measure life. It doesn't have to be measured that way. It doesn't have to be lived that way, which is why we constantly say storyline is a community of faith in God's grace, which means that you can belong before you believe no matter what you believe. We are a church literally this summer with no walls. And if it were any other way, we wouldn't be about grace. So I'm so grateful that that's who we are and what we talk about every, every time we're together. But that being said, the question before us is always the same. It's this. So what? Now what? Like, how does God's grace change things, change life, change me? In one way or another, every single talk that I've ever given, every single talk that we'll ever do here is about that question. How does God's grace change things? How does it change life? How could it possibly change me? Which is why I'm so excited that together we're reading through the book of Luke this summer. Because Luke goes right after these questions. Luke is the only non-Jewish writer in the Bible. And so he's this outsider and he's writing to, um, he's writing to outsiders as well. And he makes this clear from the very beginning that Jesus, in the very first lines, he says something like this. Jesus has fulfilled something that unleashes God's grace on everyone, everywhere, every day. But more than that, as we get further into the book of Luke, here's what we're going to see. That he is making a case that when we embrace what Jesus has fulfilled, we also begin to embody what we can fulfill. And that those two things in combination cultivate our fulfillment. It's a beautiful thing to see. Jesus actually calls it the abundant life. Now, last Sunday, we were back at on, online, story online, we call it, for Mother's Day because of weather. And here's what we saw last week, if you missed that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and this is later in chapter 1, um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, tapped into the source of grace, is the way we described it, and then stepped in to the goal of grace by embracing and embodying God's invitation. And um, by doing so, she gave birth to the divine. And I went into some details about what that can look like in our lives maybe, but generally speaking, the principle that we drew out of that was when she did that, she moved from potential into possibility. And as she exercised all the possibility in her life, that's what gave her purpose and peace. And that, that maybe we can do that same thing with God's invitation. Now this morning, we're going to move forward into chapter 2 of Luke as we continue this question. How does what Jesus has fulfilled, how can that inspire us and empower us to fulfill what we can with our lives and in that process find fulfillment? So this morning, I've asked my friends Ethan and Garrett Thomas to come on up, and they're going to read our passage from Luke chapter 2 this morning. If you have one of our books from the Hub, it's a book of Luke, it's found on page 12. If you don't, you can pick those up afterward. Um, and so I'm going to let Ethan and Garrett read this for us. Hi, my name's Ethan. We will be reading Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
Thanks, guys. So um, I, I remember when those two were born, by the way, this big, and now here they are in junior high with a mom way too young to have kids that old, by the way. And um, here's the tragic thing about these two, Lakeshore Junior High School. Only one of them can be voted best dancer. So good luck, guys. I'm not going to tell you which one I'm betting on, all right? But Ethan and Garrett, they're great kids. If you don't know them, they really, truly are very fine young men, which for boys their age, I think we all know that can kind of be a toss-up, right, <laughs> at that age. Um, anything can happen. It reminds me of something that I read this week. It says this, if you really want to get something done, you've got three choices. Number one, do it yourself. Number two, pay top dollar. Number three, forbid your teenager to do it. And I thought that was pretty good. Yes, I've, I've been there. We all know coercion is not going to work with teenagers. It's often counterproductive. When, when it comes to young people, it can boomerang on us. When we tell them you must do this or you can't do that, it's such a common thing, actually, that psychologists have a name for it. It's called the Romeo and Juliet effect. Forbid or deny something, and they want it even more. I saw it in my own house just this week. My daughter's home from college. We're sitting down to dinner. And as we sat down, I'm thinking about this big, huge pile of mulch that I made the mistake of getting delivered to my house. And I'm thinking, gosh, I've got to spread this mulch all over my yard. And, um, and I, I thought, I just thinking out loud, I said, I'd pay someone 100 bucks to do that. And Lisa flinched. My wife, Lisa, flinched, right? And just before she could say, I'll do it, Jenna suspected that Lisa was going to say, I'll do it. And so she yelled, I'll do it, barely beat Lisa, and then, and then goes on to say, I said it first, I said it first. Like they're in some race. And I was thinking, my God, you would think the $10 I give each of them a week would be enough, but I guess not. My goodness. So here's the deal. Jenna, I think, Jenna thought, Lisa's going to take, mom's going to take this job from me. So she wanted it even more. That is the Romeo and Juliet effect. And believe me, I am trying to figure out how to leverage that even more. Maybe I'll try to do the dishes this week or something and see what happens. But anyway, you know who else suffers from the Romeo and Juliet effect is apparently Jesus. In this passage that the boys just read, it looks as if he's kind of experiencing that. He's supposed to be doing one thing. Now, he's 12 years old now, and his parents have certain expectations of him. And he appears to be, like, shirking those expectations and those responsibilities. He's kind of sneaking off. He's clinging to the hope of childhood. Maybe he's looking to avoid the difficulty of growing up. Some are a melody and some are the beat Sooner or later 
song too. Love it. So is that what is happening with Jesus in this story? Like is he like longing for childhood? Like failure to launch kind of thing? Like I don't want to do what I'm supposed to do. Is he attempting to stay young forever? Like avoiding this Jack and Diane ending in his life? And at a glance that can be what it looks like. But here's a little background on what's going on here. See Jesus had probably gone to Jerusalem probably every year with his family for this annual Passover feast. And um, this year is special, though. It's a very special year, and I think this is why Luke mentions it. And he tells us specifically that Jesus was 12 years old. Now, Ethan and Garrett are 13, so same stage of life, all right? So um, what makes this age so special? That's the question. What makes it so special that Luke is mentioning Jesus is 12? when this happens. Well, in the Jewish culture, when a boy turned 13, he was expected to like grow up. Like this is it. You're supposed to take on adult responsibilities. I mean, can you imagine that at 13? In our culture, I think it's somewhere around 30. So, I mean, but that's another talk for another day, right? Uh, for Jewish boys, this, here's what this meant. That the year before, when you're 12, it's a very, very special time of life. They would have been in a very intentional and intensive relationship with their father that year. It would have been a pivotal year in Jesus' upbringing, is what I'm saying, in, in his preparation for the rest of his life. So in the case of Joseph, Jesus' father, that would mean an apprenticeship as a carpenter, but it would also mean more than that. It would mean that Jesus isn't just going through the motions of these religious festivals and, for example, the Passover. It would have meant that Joseph was carefully guiding Jesus through all of this um, by explaining it all to him, all the details, not just like what to do, but why we do this. He is trying to bring Jesus along, and this is why Jesus should have been with his father on this walk home, and that's what Mary is saying. That's why she's so upset. Because, see, the village would pack up. They, they would travel in huge groups back then to these festivals. Entire villages would, would leave and go to these festivals and then pack up and come back. And, and that's how they traveled back then. Large groups, extended families, entire villages. The men walking with the men. The women walking with the women. The children all over the place as they made their way back to the village. Jesus should have been with the boys of his age who were at their father's footsteps being trained and nurtured to become men. That's what's supposed to happen, but he isn't. He's disappeared, and from the perspective of his parents, being childish, really. This is not the kind of thing that a responsible young man would do. So Mary and Joseph go back to Jerusalem, searching all over for him. Every parent has done this, and Target or Walmart, right? And we're supposed to look for our kids when this happens, and some of us even do, right? And so Mary and Joseph do this. They, they go back to Jerusalem, and shockingly, they find Jesus in the temple. And he's amazing everyone with the questions he's asking and the insights he's making. And Mary sees him, and only mothers can do this, right? Like, with this combination of relief and rage, 
right, marches up right up to Jesus and says, your father and I have been looking for you. Now, every little boy knows what that means, right? When, when mom breaks out your father, oh my goodness, it, it means something big time. So when I was sent to my room as a kid, I knew I was in trouble when it was with, just wait until your father gets home. And then I would wait, you know, it's like purgatory in my room, walking back and forth. I hear the door open. My dad come in, rush to the door, put my ear on the door, and I'm listening for these fateful words because this is how I knew how much trouble I was in. If my mom said this, let me tell you what your son did today. <laughs> oh, boy. When the your father, your son buttons got pushed, it was big, big. Tr- my mom knew what she was doing. Oh, my goodness. So that is what, that's what this seems to be like. And I think some of that is probably going on here right now with Mary. Going, your father and I. She's trying to, you know, raise his level of concern. Let's put it that way. But Luke is saying, by, by telling us that Jesus is 12, not 11, not 13, 12, that this is particularly disrespectful, what Jesus has done. Mary is upset, not just because they couldn't find Jesus, but because of all the times, of all the years, this should be the one time that Jesus should be doing the will of his Father. He should be with his Father, walking with him, listening to him, learning from him, paying close attention to him, learning from him what how to live life well, what life is for, who he is, and what his life should be about. You see, that's what Mary is saying when she comes up to Jesus and says that. And this is what makes Jesus' response just so amazing and why Joseph and Mary are astounded because essentially Jesus turns to her and says, Mom, that's what I was doing. It's an amazing thing to say. When he says, I was in my father's house, he's telling Mary, that's what I was doing. It's exactly what I was doing, mom. Now, it is hard for us to see from our time and place into their time and place when this happened. But this is why Mary and Joseph are so astounded because Jesus is calling God his father. He's calling God his father. He's saying, I have a relationship with God that transcends everything else about me. It's an unbelievable thing to say. Look, it was very rare. It's very rare in the Jewish tradition to refer to God as father. You can find it in places in the Bible. But what you won't find is any one individual in Jewish literature, in the the Old Testament of the Bible, personally referring to God as their father, like Jesus is doing here. So this is a massive statement for anyone to make, would have been sacrilegious. But for a 12-year-old to say this, I mean, something is really going on here for Jesus to claim that he has a relationship with God that is different and deeper than any relationship anyone has ever had with God. Now, next week, we're going to take a little bit deeper look into this. Like, exactly how did Jesus know this? Like, where did he pick up on that? And, it's, and I think it's fascinating. But for now, just soak this in. 12-year-old boy. Stayed, same stage and season of life as Ethan and Garrett. Is amazing his parents by calling God his father. So Mary and Joseph would have heard him saying something like, I have a relationship with God that no one else has ever had. It's really an amazing thing to say. This is why the Bible says they were confused. They, did not, they didn't know exactly what to make of this. So our question really becomes, what does Jesus' unique and amazing and intimate and personal, his father-son relationship with God, have to do with us? Does it, have, does it mean anything for us today? And Luke is making this case that it has everything to do with us. It has everything to do with us because for the rest of Luke's account of the life of Jesus, what does Jesus do with this relationship that he has with God? How does he live 
because of this relationship? Does he spend the rest of his life like lording it over everybody else? Like leveraging it for his own benefit? Is he looking down on everyone? Is he demanding honor and power and prestige from everyone else because of it? No. He spends the rest of the book of Luke, the rest of the Bible, all of his life, and I would argue all of human history, inviting everyone, everywhere, every day, into that same kind of father-son, parent-child relationship with God through what he has fulfilled. It's miraculous. Jesus' message is, we too can be sons and daughters of God. And one of Jesus' first followers was a man named Paul. And Paul wrote actually most of the rest of the Bible. And he describes Jesus' invitation this way. This is what he wrote. This resurrection life you are, you are receiving from God is not timid or a grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Abba? God's spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and child. This is an amazing transformation, an incredible historical twist on the, um, on the Jewish faith. Jewish people would have been horrified by this kind of depiction of this kind, that anyone can have this kind of relationship with God. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week, like what this offer exactly is to be loved and honored and forgiven and accepted as a child of God. But Paul is telling us this kind of relationship with God is available to us. And he uses a word for father in that passage that I just read called Abba. And the reason that he, that he uses the word Abba in that passage is because Jesus does first. Abba. Jesus refers to God as Abba. And it's a really difficult word to translate, um, but it, loosely it means Papa or Daddy. And again, it, that would have shocked ancient Jew, the ancient Jewish culture to address God this way. But Jesus is showing us something, not just about who he is. This isn't just about him. It's also about who God is, what God is like, and what God is inviting us into, the way that God wants us to relate to him. This past Tuesday, I got to spend some time with my friends Blair and Erica and their son, Archie. Archie's going to be about one year, he's one year old, and this is really the first time that I got to hold a baby in over a year. It was just absolutely amazing, and I wish I could show you a picture. If we were in the auditorium right now, I would put the biggest picture possible of Archie up, because I, I showed a picture of my, to my daughter, Jenna, of Archie, and she goes, oh, he's gorgeous, and he is. Thank goodness, looks like mom, not dad. Sorry, Blair, but he, this baby is just beautiful. He's beautiful. Now, Erica told me two things on that visit when I was getting to hold uh, Archie and play with them. She said two things to me that reminded me of what Luke is showing us here in this passage this morning. She said, Archie is such a daddy's boy. Like Blair will be at work or in some other part of the house. And sometimes Archie just says over and over and over, da, 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 da. He just loves his daddy. When Archie is saying that, he is calling out, for his Abba. It's such a cool thing. This parent and child relationship, it is so intimate. It is so powerful. It's so special and unique. Look, colleagues and neighbors and friends, sometimes spouses can come and go, but children are forever. Children are forever. Now think about it this way. Who has the audacity to wake you up in the middle of the night and, I don't know, ask you for a drink of water, okay? Now, I, I tried this experiment this week. I wouldn't recommend it, but I did try this experiment this week just to field test my theory. So I woke up my wife, Lisa, at 3 a.m., and I said, Lisa, I'm, I'm really thirsty. Will you get me a glass of water? So now, 
Look, it's dark, so I couldn't see your face, but after 28 years of marriage, I'm pretty good at picking up on tone, right? And I know tone is everything. And I, the tone I picked up in her voice was, I don't think she was happy about this request as she said, get it yourself, right? But I'll tell you right now, if one of her kids asked her for a glass of water, it's a whole nother story, right? And that's the second thing that Erica told me. She said, I can be exhausted, like nothing left, more tired than I've ever been in my life being a mom of a little boy. But if Archie starts to cry in the middle of the night, I find the strength. Gosh, I think every parent can relate to that. That is the power of this parent and child relationship. Archie doesn't have to behave. He doesn't have to sit up straight. He doesn't have to mind his manners. He doesn't have to ask in some particular way, go to some particular building, and, and go through some certain ritual. Middle of the night, Erica's exhausted. But there is nothing that Blair and Erica would not do for their child. That is what Jesus is offering us. That kind of relationship with God. Unprecedented. Unbelievable. You know, after hanging out with Blair and Erica and Archie last week, I, was, um, I came across this really cool story about a song that I was familiar with. And then we're going to close with this song this morning, right now. And it was written by, of all people, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. Now, these guys are like legends of rock and roll. And when you think of like, who are the best dads on the planet? These two are not on the short list, right? And I did not know this about this song. But they actually wrote this song, something that I think it, this song is so touching and so loving, and they wrote it for their children because they had to leave them so often to go out on the road to tour. And they wrote it to their children because they wanted their children to have something to hold on to, to remind them of how much they love their children, even when they're on the road. And I think this song is a beautiful anthem for the bond between a parent and child and the kind of relationship that Jesus is inviting us to enjoy with God.
typical to close with little stones, I know. So um, there's a scholar, a biblical scholar, whose name is uh, Joaquin Aramaeus, and he did some research. He scoured all of the ancient literature, read through all of the world religions, and he established this, that when Jesus referred to God as Abba, it was the first time in any culture, society, tradition, writing, or religion that anyone had ever done that. Brand new, revolutionary, unprecedented offer that Jesus is inviting us into. And what Luke is telling us is right in chapter two is that even as a boy, Jesus had that kind of relationship with God. And then he lived the rest of his life on a mission to make it possible for us to be connected to God in the same way as our Abba. To be a child of God, not a servant, not a slave, not an adherent, not a member, not a congregant, a child. Maybe this is a better way to measure our life. Not by what we do, not by 
what we've done or accomplished, not even by who we are, but by whose we are. In this time of year, between Mother's Day and Father's Day, what, the, what a perfect time to imagine how it just might change our lives, change us, maybe even change the world if we truly embraced and embodied being Abba's child. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and for this opportunity to be together. What an amazing invitation you're holding out to everyone, everywhere, every day to connect with God like he is our Abba, parent, child. I pray that this week, I pray that today, as the sun shines and the birds sing, we would hear you um, whispering that invitation to us over and over. And what might our life look like and feel like and live like if we were to embrace and embody that? You. So God, as we, I pray that as we leave here today, that you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for coming. It's good to see you all. I hope to see you next week. Thanks.